gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing Some writers and critics who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming Was the loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing Hello everyone, welcome. Howdy. I'm Albert Wiltfarn. I'm Austin Shin. Welcome to the film room. And this week we're talking about a subject that is pretty much at the core of cinema as we know it. I'm talking about books into film. Since film has existed, this has been part of it. One of the first things that people did when they started to make films was adapt them from mediums they already knew, books. And they've never stopped. No, and they're never going to stop. I'm okay with that. Oh, I am too. Even now we're seeing ebooks are starting to get the translation. Yeah, John Dies at the End was just, uh, I just saw that in Best Buy the other day. Yeah, I mean, we're we're in the very early phases of seeing a lot of really interesting projects come from this new uh, format, but uh, today we're going to take a, a very close look at five really strong adaptations. I'm going to say right now, this is not a hate cast aside from the moment at the end. We're, t- we're looking at five very interesting and kind of different approaches to adapting books to film. Now, when we say this isn't a hate cast, we mean that there's no hate from our end. Uh, there might be from your end. Some of these opinions are a little controversial just because of the, the material. Of course, adaptation's always going to be that way. There will be mixed opinions. And that's how it should be. Uh, w- one of the real challenges with adapting a book to film is that it's always going to be filtered through someone else's perspective. When you read a book, you get a very specific image in your head. It's hard to reconcile that sometimes with the film version. I've heard that a couple times with uh, Harry Potter. Uh, one of my one of the managers I used to work with said, yeah, he has a very specific movie in his head, and the movies don't really fit that. See, that's funny, because to me, that series, which is a subject for another cast... Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. I've always found those movies, though, to be really kind of shockingly spot-on for what I pictured. I know that Hogwarts has all looked exactly like how I thought Hogwarts should look. Yeah, the we- same with the Weasley house for me. Oh, I mean, and of course, the casting in those films was so dead-on, so very amazing. But even then, I remember when Hermione showed up, and I was thinking, she's not quite how I pictured the character. And hmm. that's no slight to Emma Watson, who uh, we'll be discussing. Who will be discussing her work a little bit uh, later on in the cast uh, in another film. But it was just, it wasn't what I expected. And I think that that's the challenge of adaptation, is that when we read something, when we watch something, we picture different things. And it's 
you know, it's up to the translator, the director, and the screenwriter to get it right. And the film that kind of inspired us to do this cast was a movie about the very real challenge of adapting books to film. Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jonze's brilliant adaptation. Kaufman first in the authorial stance because adaptation is, in my opinion, as much if not more a Kaufman work than it is a Jones work. It, yeah. His touches are, I mean, they're just all over that thing. And, of course, in watching the film, you get that impression because, of course, it's mostly about him. It's obviously a very fictionalized account of trying to make the movie. Well, more specifically, trying to write the screenplay. If you haven't seen it, it's Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones also worked on uh, the movie Being John Malkovich, which is a very, very strange movie. And yet, weirdly accessible. That's what's funny about it, is it's very accessible. Yeah, as strange as it is. Adaptation actually takes place during the filming of that, and they have commissioned Kaufman to write another flick that's supposed to be an adaptation of the book The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. It goes along with his struggles. Nicolas Cage, of course, plays Charlie Kaufman, and he has a twin brother named Donald Kaufman, who, when I first saw the film, it was kind of weird because Nicolas Cage plays both parts. Okay, but here's the twist. We find out that, that the killer really suffers from multiple personality disorder, right? See, he's, he's actually really the cop and the girl. All of them are him. Isn't that fucked up? The only idea more overused in serial killers is multiple personality. On top of that, you explore the notion that cop and criminal are really two aspects of the same person. See every cop movie ever made for other examples of this. Mom called it psychologically taught. The other thing is, there's no way to write this. Did you consider that? I mean, how, how could you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and and working in a police station at the same time. Trick photography. It must be noted he plays them both well, and he plays off of himself well. You don't really ever think that it's one actor in uh, two parts. No. Because you're right, he has amazing chemistry with himself. <laughs> as funny as that is. Well, I mean, it is a comedy. It's, it's, it's allowed to be yeah. funny. He ne you never get confused about, okay, which cage is which, because he plays them so differently. Yeah, exactly. It follows his uh, misadventures and trying to adapt this book, and he figures out that it's kind of unadaptable. But at the same time, his struggle is intercut with him reading the book and the book actually being adapted into film form, with Susan Orlean as a character and uh, played by Meryl Streep. What's the other guy's? What's the guy's name? John LaRoche. Yeah, being played by. Chris Cooper, who uh, won an Oscar for the film, actually. Oh, I did not know that. This makes two casts in a row that we've uh, discussed uh, comedic performances winning Oscars. So, nice. True. We're on a roll. Woohoo. And also, Charlie Kaufman and his fictional brother Donald Kaufman won the Oscar, which I think notes the... They actually did not win, which... I'm not particularly... Oh, they didn't? Happy. No, they didn't, which I'm not particularly happy about. Kaufman did win for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which I am. Oh, I didn't know he wrote that. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, he won the Oscar for that. Yeah. Great film. 
Brick on that one. Yeah, love Michelle Gondry. I'm one of the few people out there that really love the Green Hornet, so yeah, I'm there with you. <laughs> I actually haven't seen that one. I'll to I'll have to see it. It would have made a good subject for this cast if we were doing comic books and uh, that kind of things in movies, but we're not, sort of. We will. We will in time. We will in time. We're briefly touching on them. Uh, the two that we're addressing in this cast are solo works, so like they could technically be considered books. Yeah, they're they're closed ended. Is the thing. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, comics in general is a whole other cast, which we do plan to do. Mm-hmm. Several, actually. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to the film. I don't. I don't want to say the ending, uh, but it, it spirals. It really, really spirals. And it spirals so beautifully. <laughs> yes. True to uh, the movie's content, it doesn't cheat you. It doesn't. The first time you watch it, it's kind of a mindfuck. To be honest, so you think these are real people, right? These are real people that let this movie be made, right? What's going on? It, it's 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 such a strange, beautiful entity unto itself. I mean, there's really no other way to describe it. But yeah, what I was what I was gonna say earlier is, have you read any of the Orchid Thief? No, I have not. I've read snippets, and what's adapted to the film is adapted very faithfully. I think you I think you've told me that before and I can believe it. Point is what's so wonderful is that every one of these flowers has a specific relationship with the insect that pollinates it. There's a certain orchid looks exactly like a certain insect so the insect is drawn to this flower. It's double, it's soulmate. And wants nothing more than to make love to it. After the insect flies off, spots another soulmate flower and makes love to it thus pollinating it. And neither the flower nor the insect will ever understand the significance of their lovemaking. I mean, how could they know that because of their little dance, the world lives, but does, by simply doing what they're designed to do, something large and magnificent happens. In this sense, they show us how to live, how the only barometer you have is your heart. It's a good movie, but I think ultimately the reason that I think it lost the best adapted screenplay Oscar is because when you get right down to it, it's very barely an adaptation of anything. That's true. As far as I can surmise, uh, it is a pretty good, complete adaptation of uh, the actual book, The Orchid Thief. Like it even it goes all the way through, but that only goes to the middle of the film, and even then, it's interspersed heavily interspersed uh, throughout the the Charlie Kaufman story. And of course, the two storylines do intertwine. Uh, they do well. They don't intertwine so much as collide with each other. Yeah, collide is the accurate word. Yeah, and uh, my God, <laughs> a- adaptation is an, it's an amazing film. I can't recommend it enough. Mm-hmm. It's just really kind of hard though to say that it's truly a particularly faithful adaptation. I mean, because it's not even remotely. It's 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 a fun starter for this cast, but I feel like uh, it's just not not really a good adaptation ultimately. But that's fine. That's kind of the point of the story. I think that brings us to the subject of our cast, which is five rather interesting examples of adapting. And uh, the one that I want to start off with is The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Which we, we've we 
both seen and you have read. I've actually read the book a couple of times. Um, what makes this one so interesting is that uh, the writer and director of the film, Stephen Chbosky, was also the writer of the book. And, in fact, refused to sell the rights to the book unless he could adapt it himself. Which actually makes a lot more sense if you know that Chbosky himself was film educated. That That's more his background than novels. Um, this is his only novel to date. He's done more film work, including the very strong uh, Rent. Uh, he, he did the movie version of that. He wrote that. Um, this was his directorial debut. And what's interesting about this one is that the book is so very beloved. This is a book that... Do you know people that, like, worship the book? Besides you, I haven't really... Um, if I know people, I haven't talked to them about it. But I have heard a lot about it, just from outside sources. My sister, a bunch of her friends, a bunch of my friends, tons of people that I know absolutely worship that book. It, it means something to them. It affected them deeply. So this was a case where to do a movie version, they had to get it right. And now is where I might be incurring a little bit of wrath, but I'm going to say it. I actually kind of have some issues with the book. I think it's very clearly a first novel, and I think it's a bit amateurish in places. I think it's very unfocused in places. I, however, think that the movie version is what I think a lot of people think the book is, if that makes any sense. I thought it was one of the best films of last year. I have to say, it's not true. I do know one person who has read the book. Shane Morris. Also known as Shane, Shane Unlots. Hi, Shane. I know he listens to us. And he said he was looking forward to uh, watching the movie since having read the book. Well, um, I mean, I mentioned that a lot of people re that I know really worship the book. Every one of them that I know that's seen the movie has come away from it, blown away by how accurate uh, Chbosky got his own book. Amazing, Like, I mean, I've given my thoughts on the film. I've... I think it's instructive here to get your thoughts on it. I mean, how did the movie hit you? Not having read the book, I thought it was really, really good. It was well done. It was well acted, well written. I went in knowing that the guy who wrote the book also wrote the screenplay and directed it. And I didn't know how that would go down because I, I didn't know that he did have film background. I was expecting at least a good uh, book adaptation. But yeah, it, it really, it surprised me. It was very well shot. It was very well, all the shots were very well composed. Good lord, the editing. Oh, it's superbly edited. Every shot and edit has the intended effect. Like a couple times towards the end where he blacks out. That felt really surprising and urgent and in the moment. Just a shock when it comes back out of it. You nailed it. That's exactly how it felt to me, and that's exactly how it was supposed to feel. I mean, he really puts you in the main character's perspective, which I think paid off immensely for the film. For those who haven't seen it, it's about a troubled kid uh, who is obviously affected by something that happened in his past. Um, I, won't, I won't say what any of those are, because those are reveals. Like, you really have to watch the film to experience those reveals, because it does unfold. But he's a freshman in high school trying to... I think he's going back into school. Am I right on that? Yes, yeah. He's going back into school after something that hasn't really been explained and won't be explained again until much deeper into the film. 
He meets a couple of friends who are seniors. He's a freshman and they're seniors. It's about all about their journeys through the school year. It's a very funny film. You know, as well as deep and very dramatic, it's a very funny film. It is a very funny film. I'm glad you uh, hit on that because it's easy to watch the trailers and get the impression that this is all going to be something that's going to be, you know, hard and intense and real, man. You know, those kinds of irritating, nonsense films. Teen cliches. Yeah, it's it's not. It's very genuinely funny. A lot of that, I think, goes to Ezra Miller, who plays Patrick, who is hysterical in the film. And very touching, but often just the funniest thing in it. Prick Punch is not a toy. I learned that back in Nam in 68. Callahan, Sergeant said, you put down that Prick Punch, you go kill Skooks. And you know what happened? That Prick Punch killed my best friend in a Saigon whorehouse. I heard you were going to be in my class. Are you proud to be a senior, having to take freshman shot? Patty cakes? Look, my name is Patrick. Either you call me Patrick or you call me nothing. Okay, nothing. He wasn't doing the impersonation to be mean or anything. He was just trying to make us freshmen feel better. It does have some people in, uh, a couple of people from the movie Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, so it's almost a mini reunion. It is, although I don't think they share a, I don't think they shared a line of dialogue in either production. No, they really did not. The guy who plays Young Neil and uh, uh, Johnny Simmons, yeah, and and Mae Whitman, whose name oddly enough is Mary Elizabeth, which is the actress's name that played. Uh, oh, May May herself played Roxanne Richter, but uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead played Ramona. Whitman is really kind of revelatory in it. I've seen her in a lot of stuff until now, and most famously, of course, she was uh, Egg. I mean, Anne <laughs> on Arrested Development. Huh. She's she she really plays something very different here, but it's kind of impossible to talk about this film without talking about Emma Watson because oh yeah, as uh, the part of Sam is written, she is the dream girl, and when you read the book, she, you know she's someone that she's very unique. She's a very specific character, and she's not in any way Hermione Granger. Yeah, when I met you, you were this scared freshman. Now look at you in that suit. You're like a sexy English schoolboy. Innocent. Worst kind of guys. Never see you coming. And parents love you. That's like extra danger. I don't know whether it's the first film she's done outside of Harry Potter, but it's the first film I've seen her outside of Harry Potter. You know, when you've seen someone in eight movies play the same role, it is hard to separate them. But she also does a superb American accent, which... I think helped big time, but beyond that, she was a different character. She was a unique character. Hermione Granger really never comes to mind. I mean, there's really not a single scene company that you really think about that in. I think about the only time that I thought about Watson outside of the movie was, at one point, it's made clear that her character isn't the smartest academically. And I couldn't help but think, well, that's ironic casting, seeing as how Watson <laughs> is pretty famous for her intellect uh, uh she's known to have done very well in school and such uh but watson really delivers she she really does a strong job here and she really makes me excited about what she's going to do next we, we've also we'd be tremendously remiss if we didn't give some note to uh, logan Lerman, who plays uh, the main character charlie oh yeah if he didn't work the movie wouldn't work 
but he's very empathetic. Yeah, and all throughout the film, you do see someone who is a little bit tortured and who is trying to fit in. The expressions on his face. I mean, you can you can tell he's having a good time with his friends, and you can tell that, but his past is always on his face. I related to this movie. I mean, I'm gonna I'll be perfectly honest. I related to this movie a lot because I know what that feels like. I know what the situation that he was going through felt like. I I have Asperger's syndrome, and I fully understood what this film was about. I this movie really brought back a lot of memories for me. And I think that's kind of the mark of a really personal story, that other people can hear it and be like, okay, I can relate to this. I think it's funny how the more generic stories we don't relate to as much, but stories that are very clearly individual, like, I'd wager a lot of things in this movie probably happened in some form to Jabosky. I mean, that's just clear. It, f- it feels like they would. I mean, it's it's set in a very specific time period. Something I didn't know watching, but I did notice that a lot of things were anachronistic, like the fact that people still use vinyl, although they kind of do now, but, you know, as a novelty. Well, these characters are hipsters. It does need to be remembered. That's true. These characters are very definitely hipsters. They're going to be vinyl aficionados. That's true. Oh my god, they're playing good music. Holy shit. Holy shit. They are. They're playing good music. Living room routine. Living room routines. No, that, that that part didn't ring false, but they use tapes a lot, yeah. which makes sense because it's 92. Somehow an iTunes playlist just doesn't have the same appeal, does it? Just because you, you can see the tracks. Well, I guess on mixtapes you can, but at the same time, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this one because it's one that I've wanted to get my thoughts on record for some time about because it, it's just a really good movie. But as I said... A lot, pretty much everybody I know who really loved the book has come back to me and said the movie was exactly how I pictured it. Which is funny because I really noticed some very key differences. The movie is much less morose, frankly. It's, it's much more filtered. It's much more focused. A lot of the fat was trimmed down. I have a theory about why that is. My theory is that because this was the book's author giving their take on the book for the film. I kind of feel like he was giving himself an extra draft. I feel like this was sort of a final, final draft for him. Which is cool. It's something writers don't get to do very often, and I'm glad that he did, because it really paid off. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting to me, because he has a lot of stuff about uh, Charlie's family that doesn't get translated from book to film, and I think it's that he decided, okay, I want to focus on what I really think the book is about. And so a lot of that stuff got trimmed and lost. Pays off. Yeah. Pays off big time. Yeah. It's one of those things you kind of wish more writers had that opportunity to write the screenplay. I mean, I guess sometimes it doesn't quite work. Oh, I can make the one where it doesn't quite work uh, right off the top of my head. The Cider House Rules. Oh, really? That was a, that's, that's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. It's a very good movie. But I don't think it quite works as an adaptation of the book because the book is so epic in depth and detail and the movie loses a lot of that and it lost a lot of stuff that i felt made it really special and unique hmm well that's too bad yeah i mean it's it's as i said to me it's a good movie of a great book well yeah and that's that's part of the challenge is you know a book is allowed to have a lot of depth that in a movie would just come off as exposition if you tried to put it in 
So you have to find a creative way to include that without bogging down the movie. I think it's really telling that some of the best adapted works have been cases where the original source material was fairly thin. Um, the uh, 1992 version of, of Mice and Men is pretty much that book put on film. But that's because that's a 127, 150 pages at tops book. It's more of a novella. You're, you're pushing it even at that length. I mean, it's it's a tiny book. So it's not hard to get every single thing from that book onto screen. But uh, that kind of gives me a chance to segue out to a topic that I wanted to discuss, which was The Descendants. movie that had three screenwriters which is funny because I've read the book that it's based on and there are moments of the film that are a little more than let's take the well actually not moments of the film the sweeping majority of the film is a little more than let's take the book and get it on screen the the movie is an adaptation of a novel by Cowie Hart Hemmings I believe is the author's name I sound like I'm kind of being dismissive here but I think that this was actually a great example of a book that was well chosen to be put on film. Uh, I read the book after I watched the movie, actually. And if you watch the movie and then read the book as I did, you're going to really be floored by how much of the dialogue was taken directly from the book. I would say the majority of the dialogue. Almost as if you could just um, uh, read the book along with the movie. Yeah. Yeah, you really could. Uh, you know, obviously it's more condensed. Right. But it's more condensed using the raw material of the book. There's not a lot of major changes that were made from book to film, which is interesting because the writers, uh, one of the writers and the director, Alexander Payne, traditionally doesn't do that when he adapts. Traditionally, when he adapts, he goes in and he makes major changes. He did that with Election, although that one stayed fairly faithful. Uh, about Schmidt bore almost no resemblance to the book that it was based on, and I understand that was deliberate. And he did that with Sideways. Oh, I love Sideways. I do too. And I sound like I'm kind of coming down um, almost in my tone a little firmly on the side of, against the Descendants. But actually, I think this was a smart decision. This was a really smart decision to stay by the book. Because I think sometimes when you're adapting, it's not always a good idea to say, okay, I want to put my stamp on the material. Sometimes the material works, and it's nice to see it done as it was written, and that's exactly what happened here. Um, for those who have not seen it, it's we're really basically almost recapping some of my favorite films the last few years, because this was certainly one of them. Um, I know you've seen it, too. Oh, yeah. It's a funny film. It's a very funny movie about a very not funny situation at all. Um, George Clooney, in a performance that probably should have won the Oscar. When I heard about the accident and about the coma... I wasn't even in town. I was on Maui, on business, and we hadn't spoken in three days. In a way, we hadn't really spoken in months. If you're doing this to get my attention, Liz, it's working. I'm ready now. I'm ready to talk. I'm ready to change. I'm ready to be a real husband and a real father. Just wake up. Please, Liz, just wake up. I like Jean Dujardin and the artist, but Clooney gives a career best performance here. As a man whose wife is 
basically being kept alive on machines, and he's having to decide if he wants to end her life. And, you know, he's having to come to that realization that it's, it's over. It's a tricky situation for him. And in the middle of all this, he finds out that his wife had been cheating on him. Which, in the grief process, that kind of that kind of interrupts things. It's it's a huge interruption, and it really it, it's simultaneously a very funny motion picture. It's very very funny, and it's very touching and sad and powerful and great for community fans. It's mind blowing to think that one of the adapters was Dean Pelton. I'm serious. Really? Yeah, Jim Rash is one of the uh, screenwriters on the film, so he has an Oscar. He has an Oscar. Uh, the Dean from Community has an Oscar, <laughs> which I, I've got no complaints with. As I said, I, I think the film is absolutely incredible. It, it's a great film. It's superbly cast through and through. It, it does have the unique image of George Clooney having been cheated on with Matthew Lillard. Boy, there's, that, there's an image. There's, there's even quite a funny scene where him and his daughters confront him. It's funny because it's very dramatic. But it's also very, very funny. Elizabeth is dying. Oh, wait. Fuck you. And she's dying. We unhooked her from the machines this morning. She'll be dead in a few days. This is him? Mm. Why would she go for him? It's me. Well, he's very articulate. Yeah, I mean... But it, it's, it's a really great look at grief. And... Uh, I found reading the book after seeing the movie very instructive because, again, it was like, okay, you didn't see anything wrong here, so why change it? I mean, there, there's a little bit of a shift in the focus. I think it's a little clearer why the decisions that are made at the end of the film, and I don't want to spoil it, are made. It's, it's kind of hinted that not everything is as clear morally as it seemed to be in the movie. But that's a very minor decision, and I don't think it really affects things. I just thought that was an interesting case of really staying true to the book. And I'm glad that they did. And it should be noted, it's a very short novel, too. I think it barely cracks 260 pages. Which, again, good for adaptation. Yeah. Epic-length novels typically do not make for good films. So, of course, let's discuss an epic-length novel that made it onto film. Naturally, let's... We're going to talk about... Watchmen. Watchmen. One of the most... Boy, here's where I can sense that people are grabbing their backs. Because... <laughs> I recently bought the director's cut of the movie, which... I've not seen that, actually. Oh, you haven't seen the director's cut? No. All it really does is extend some scenes and add some scenes in that were already in the book. Uh, I didn't have a problem with that. I, I think that was okay. It didn't really change the pacing much. I wouldn't imagine it would. No. It's already a pretty slowly paced film at 2 hours, 40 minutes. It, it extends it to 3 hours. That's fine. I didn't feel the length. So the you know the director's cuts, uh, pretty much just as good as the theatrical cut. I have a copy of Watchmen right in front of me, the actual book. Um, my God, <laughs> it's the the book was widely considered unadaptable. Yeah, and just to address all of you out there that are listening that still think it is, I know you do. <laughs> I'm gonna have to disagree pretty strongly with you though. Uh, it follows 
so many characters, so many points of view. There's there's a lot of backstory. There's like it's it's an it's a complete alternate history. When I mean the history, I mean like the uh, in the past century. It doesn't really go far beyond that. But it's a complete rewritten history. It's dense. It is drawn in that nine panels per page format, so it it's packed. Um, Alan Moore has famously had really bad luck with adaptations. Uh, the adaptations of From Hell and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which did not follow his work at all, were so bad that he took his name off of V for Vendetta and Watchmen. He d- he didn't want to be credited for. Uh, having written the source material for those? No, and his name is not on either film. Interesting. Which, uh, again, I'm about to, about to tip my toe into some pretty controversial water there, but I think it's funny that he took his name off those because those are probably the adaptations I'd own up to having been associated with. He also didn't take any money for them, it's got to be noted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he gave all the money to the artists. Hmm. Well, that's noble of him. Yeah, but um, it, it's funny to me that he took his name off of those two versions because... As I said, those are those are versions of, of his work that I would actually be very happy with. I have not read V for Vendetta, and I know that it takes far more liberties than Watchmen does, but I've read Watchmen multiple times and seen the movie multiple times. I know Moore refuses to watch it, but I kind of feel like that's his loss. One of my favorite jokes that came out around the time that movie did was, Alan Moore isn't watching the Watchmen. Yeah, and... He's he's made it very clear he he won't watch it. Uh, yeah, which is his loss, really. It it really is because I think this is a pretty solid adaptation. Um, I should note I've read an earlier draft that they were looking at the uh, Sam Hand draft, and let me tell you something: if people think that this was a rough adaptation, they don't know how bad it could have gotten. Ooh, Jesus. Yeah, that was an adaptation that changed the ending. Now, we're going to get into how they did change the ending for the movie in a moment. I have to say this. I do have to say this. The movie is not perfect. No, it's not. No, it is far from perfect. We're not saying it is perfect. We are saying it's a very good adaptation of it. It's probably the closest uh, that anybody will ever get to making a a really good adaptation of uh, the book. I do have some qualms with the movie in that it's kind of over-directed in the violence and the gore, the cursing, the sex scenes. And it's miscast in a couple of key roles. Yeah. Silk Spectre, namely. Silk Spectre. You had a problem with Silk Spectre? The actress is fine, but she's not quite... I needed someone much stronger than she was. She was a decent yeah. placeholder, but she wasn't quite how I saw the character. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I th- I thought that Night Owl was good. You know, he was the tough superhero, but he was also the very insecure, nerdy glasses guy. Okay, we'll get to that in a moment, but the ending. And that's, a con- that's probably one of the most controversial things about the movie, the adaptation, is the, f- is the fact they changed the ending. It wasn't a huge change. And you know, I think we can we can spoil. It's a three year old movie, and it's a it's a twenty year old book, close to a twenty year old, thirty year old book. Jesus. Yeah, it's it's up there. Yeah, so it's it's been out there for a while. So I think we can spoil the ending. What happens in the book is it ties to this kid throughout the book is reading a copy of the Black Freighter, which is a very very graphic kind of violent 
comic book about this guy who is shipwrecked and he has to survive, so he builds a raft on bloated dead bodies and he does what he has to to survive. I don't remember too much of that part, but he basically becomes a, a brute savage in the process of surviving. How that ties into the overall plot of the book is the guy who illustrates the book is on like a cruise with some other artists, orchestrated by Adrian Veidt, the uh, Ozymandias. And he's trying to get them to design this thing. Like, he's a biogenetics genius. He he can create things. The book ending is basically Giant Squid Attacks New York, which, I don't know. I, even, even on the first read, I thought that was kind of stupid. <laughs> it doesn't make much sense. No, I mean, I get that he gathered all these artists together to create this the most horrible alien thing possible, and then he... You know, he kills all of them. He blows up the boat so they won't know. And, of course, he kills his team by freezing them. In the movie, he poisons them. He bioengineers this thing, which Bubastis, his uh, pet, I forget what the creature is called. It's like a lynx thing, but it's this thing that from myth that never existed, but he created it. That's the only That's the only leftover from that aspect of the comic book. Yeah, I haven't seen the animated Black Freighter thing, which, again, I don't know why they create... Well, they create it for fan service, really. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of fan service. Yeah, and the Black Freighter is mentioned, and it is, uh, it is seen a little more in the director's cut. And that's fine, you know? I, it can be there. It doesn't really interrupt anything. It doesn't really belong anymore. It's an outdated thing since they changed the ending. Uh, what they changed the ending to, I thought, kind of made things that were already in there flow better, like the involvement of Dr. Manhattan. I agree completely. Yeah, like the thing that he's working on in the beginning of the comic book and the movie uh, doesn't really connect to anything at the in the in anything else in the comic book. It's just something he's working on for the military. In the movie, he's working on it for Adrian Veidt. You know, and at the end of that scene, he teleports it to him, to his labs. You know, it connects to that, and of course, the whole... Dr. Manhattan's storyline is in the book where, you know, America has this super weapon. That's mostly what's going on in the background of the book. People are wondering, you know, when total annihilation is going to be, when, you know, if people attack America, like if Russia attacks America with nukes, what will happen? Will Dr. Manhattan level Russia? And it's very, it's very tense and it, make, it intensifies the effect of the Cold War because America has this super weapon called Dr. Manhattan. And what happens in the movie is Adrian takes this thing that Dr. Manhattan has worked on, which has his unique energy signature. And also, it also ties brilliantly into the cancer subplot. And in the book, Adrian is behind it, where he tries to frame him for multiple cases of giving people cancer just by being near them. It's still in the movie, too. Yeah, it's still in the movie, but they tie it in better. The, basically, at the end of the movie, he uses the thing that Dr. Manhattan has been working on to blow up New York using his energy signature and therefore framing him. Not only New York, but also cities around the world. And that, to me, makes a little more sense. I mean, it's been a few years since the arguments have really been on the forefront. I mean, I, I know that a lot of people were definitely not happy. Especially because the film, for much of it, is pretty literal as an adaptation. I mean, there's a lot of scenes that are, even some of the framing is taken from Dave Gibbons. Uh, Which he did work on the film. He was the the visual consultant for it. 
Yeah, and it, it very clearly shows. Now, Gibbons very much put his fingerprints on it and said, you know, yeah, I, I approve of this. Um, as he well should have. And really, I'd rather, I'd much rather have his stamp on the film than Morse, which sounds like an odd statement, but it it looks like the book. I mean, the colors match. The Oh, it's a very colorful film. Yeah. It's, it's a very bright film. Yeah, I think the the main thing that the book does is have a very traditional comic book style where most upbeat superhero stories have uh, used primary colors. He uses all secondary colors. Watchmen really did a good job of matching that. It's a very teal movie. Yeah, it is. Yeah, purple, blue. Lots of browns. Lots of brown, yeah. And kind of maroon reds. Mm, oh yeah, yeah, lots of that. And yellows, like dull. Oh, yellow. the yellow! Yeah, there's a <laughs> lot of very. I mean, it's it's a bright film. It's an eye-catching film. Uh, yeah, Zack Snyder can shoot a beautiful film. Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned that people had qualms with this ending, and I still feel like, man, if they would only read this other draft that I read, which ended with the main characters being transported to this to our world. To what? To to the non-alternate universe? Yeah, to this world. Oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work. It did not work at all. Um, oh my it god. It was a ridiculous ending. That, oh, okay. We've talked about pet peeves and adaptations when they take something that clearly takes place in another world and transport it to our world, like the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie and Fat Albert. It's, uh, no, no. No. That's a no, horrible no. device, and nobody should ever use it. it. It is a device that I have never seen work. Uh, it's, In fact, it's kind of breathtaking how little I've ever seen that work. The reason that I think people keep trying to use it is because, well, I don't know. I mean, I've seen one movie that kind of played with that, but not really, and that was the idea of Toontown in... Who framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, but that's a that's its own little universe in itself, though, where uh, a universe in which Toontown exists. Exactly. So that so that works because that's that's part of that universe. That was that was a universe where the rules were set up, and because it was used as an allegory for racism, mm -hmm. uh, it's rather powerful allegory. As an adult, you go back and you look at it and you're like, "Wow, I watched this as a kid." Yeah, but it did not work for Watchmen. The script, and, and I should note, that was only the last page of the thing, but it still would have been a giant flip of the bird to fans of the book, especially because the book's ending is genius, and I mean the last panel, and those are recreated to a T in the movie. It, it's the gut punch of the last moments of that movie are great. And uh, then it leads into a My Chemical Romance song, which actually isn't an annoying choice. Uh, it was actually, <laughs> that was actually a really appropriate choice because uh, Gerard Way is a huge comic book fan. Yeah. But, but I mean, yeah, it, it could have been worse. I think that's the thing that we have to stress to people is... It could have been so much worse. The version that we wound up getting, I think we all really need to be kind of grateful for but yeah, I think part of the argument was having to do with international politics and that it was America that people were mad at. You know, if he had just attacked New York and not everywhere else, then, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I forgot. You know, I get that. I get that. 
but I think you know everywhere works just because it is still it's still kind of an outside threat. You know the point of oh yeah I remember part of the point was in the original it was blamed on aliens, which is an outside threat. You know it's not an internal threat. But I think the movie kind of gets across that, like, you know, he goes to Mars. When Sully leaves him and when he's accused of giving all these people cancer, he goes to Mars because he no longer has touch with humanity. Why would I save a world I no longer have any stake in? You do it for me. If you really care. When you left me, I left Earth. Does that not show you that I care? Lori was the younger one. Lori, okay. Sally was the was Silk Spectre one. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, and he is kind of considered more of a god than human. It's illustrating the fact that when he when he fought in Vietnam, a lot of the Vietnamese wanted to surrender to him personally, and you know they they bowed down to him. So he kind of was an outside threat in that respect. He was he was a god, and he'd smote all these cities. He's outside humanity. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, you know, unites the world, and there's a touch of kind of a 9-11 effect in there. You know, they didn't really put any allusions to 9-11 in the movie, thank God. No. But, you know, that's, I think that's the thing in recent history that we can, more with it, we can closely relate it to. There's a lot of patriotism around them in, in this country. And, uh, did it bring peace? No. <laughs> no. In this universe, it did, at least for a while. And, of course, both end with the... Let me open it here. Seymour, we got nothing to write about anymore. Everyone in the country, every country in the world are holding hands now, singing songs about peace and love. It's like living in a goddamn global hippie commune. Okay, um, I could look for something in the crank file. Crank file? Whatever. Take some initiative. Run whatever you like. I leave it entirely in your hands. Rorschach's Journal, October 12th, 1985. Tonight, a comedian died in New York. As he reaches for Rorschach's Journal, which of course details exactly what happened, which of course you know. <laughs> there can be nothing good after that. But maybe the guy decides he's a lunatic. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't know, and it should be noted, Jackie O'Haley as Rorschach is the best thing about the movie. Bye, Bob. Oh, holy shit. <laughs> he disappeared. Uh, he was not Jackie O'Haley, he was Rorschach. None of you seem to understand. I'm not locked in here with you. <laughs> You're locked in here with me! He is the character as you picture him, as you hear him. His voice was perfect. Everything about him was the character. So I really think the decision to go with Dr. Manhattan was a pragmatic decision. I think the squid would have looked silly on screen. Personally, after reading it for the first time, I was kind of uh, looking at the book going, what the hell is this? Am I reading a different book? I get that it's kind of supposed to be like a Cthulhu-type thing, but it feels out of nowhere. It doesn't fit in what we've been set up to deal with here. Uh, this one kind of fits better with the movie. Again, he connects things that previously were not connected, which is always good. It gives you a good reason for Dr. Manhattan to get off the stage. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because in both versions, Dr. Manhattan leaves. You know, he says he might create life. He basically becomes his fulfilled role of God. Yeah, it does give him a better reason to leave other than just, well, that's done. I think I'm gone now. Bye. Yeah, it, it's 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 tighter. It, it It is a tighter adaptation. Uh, and again, I just think it's I think it's an excellent film overall. Again, I think a lot of people really did not care for it, but I'm sorry, I'm I'm not with you. I'm not with you there, and I'm not going to be with you there. Again, it's not a perfect film. It's no. not a perfect film. But as an adaptation, it's it's pretty. It's really good. It's pretty dead on, as far as theme, as far as um, actually adapting the material. I I thought he handled the different points of view pretty well, uh, especially the Doctor Manhattan chapter, because every chapter in the book does kind of follow a different point of view and different people. The Doctor Manhattan chapter is especially striking because it is jumpy because it follows his point of view of time which is hard it jumps around a lot because he he experiences time simultaneously and i thought they did a pretty good job adapting that chapter especially it's it's very clear it's 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 really something it's 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 a really superb sequence and it merits further study um watchman represents one book what happens when you have to try and jam six into one movie <laughs> Oh boy, especially one that takes place over the course of a year. Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. We are Sex Bob-Bob and we're here to make you think about death and get sad and stuff. Mayhem. I, I, I do not envy the challenge that was set out for the filmmakers. And, uh, I wondered if they weren't going to make two movies, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and Scott Pilgrim vs. the Universe. That'd be perfect. They could cover the first three books in one film and the and the last three books in the second film, and that'd be perfect. I wonder why they're only doing one. Probably because box office-wise, that movie bled money. That movie just absolutely gushed money. Uh, it was a huge box office bomb. Yeah, which will always be a cringing point for me personally. I I saw it four times. So you know, I I did my part. <laughs> I can't say that I did. Um, I which but should, you saw it. <laughs> I saw it, but my circumstances were kind of funny. That's true. You saw it early. I was in a comic shop one day, and I saw that they had passes for a free showing, and I was like, "Ooh, when is this?" Thinking, okay, I might even try to get off work to go see it. I looked at the date on the thing, and then I looked at the cash register, and I realized it was that very day. Oh. So I derailed every single plan that I had, which was I was going to go see another movie that day, and promptly went to see that uh, with a friend. Uh, I mean, and then I saw it again when it came to the Dollar Theater. So, I mean, that's only about a buck fifty that I put towards the film. It's still money. It's still money, but, I mean, I, I tried to get the word out early, but... Oh, yeah. It, it was a hard sell for people, and the film ultimately, as I said, is a tremendous money loser. And they also put a lot into, I think it was a $30 million ad campaign. Oh, they tried to sell it. I'll give them this. The ad campaign for that movie sold it right. Uh, the, movie that, the movie that they told you you were getting was the movie you got. If we're going to date, you may have to defeat my seven evil exes. So what you're saying is we are dating? I guess. Does that mean we can make out? Sure. 
But ultimately, the film was a money loser, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're not talking about it in the context of it as a bomb. We want to talk about it as an adaptation, and... And it does have cult status. It does have cult status. It sucks as bomb, but it does have cult status. It's going to be one that I think in time will recoup, because I think so many people love it. It's going to be a catalog title for Universal big time. But it's one that I really deeply, deeply love. And it's an interesting case, because it is the six-book series on speed. There's no other way to put it. <laughs> It really is. And it's it's directed by, I will safely say, my favorite all-time director, Edgar Wright, which I am so happy. I actually got into the series because I heard Edgar Wright was directing it. As did I. And when I read the synopsis and I was I was in. The, the six-book series is just, I enthusiastically, is an understatement for how strongly I feel about it. It's, it's a great series. And they, they are currently in the process of re-releasing them in color. I haven't read the color books, but I have held one in my hands. It's hardcover. They have the first three out right now, I think. Yeah, the, or the third one's just now coming out, so it'll be out this... Yeah. It'll be out by the time that this cast is out. Oh, yeah. And I think the fourth one is later this year, and by the time uh, the end of next year rolls around, all six will be out. But I've, I've held one in my hands. I've flipped through it. It looks gorgeous. Let's... The book is in black and white, which is interesting because Ramona's hair color changes throughout the books. And, of course, you see the, the color on the on the covers. You, know, you do see your hair colors, but uh, they do a good job of getting across the fact that her hair color has changed. And you can see that uh, she has dyed her hair blue, even though it's just a different shade of gray. Yeah. it's. I don't it's... know how they manage that. I don't either. The movie version, of course, is able to handle this by making her hair a just really bright blue. Yeah, and of course, in the movie, her her hair does change three different times, but each time I think is a different level, so to speak, of what's going on in the movie and what's going on with her. It was brilliantly handled. It, they compressed it into a week. They compressed a year into a week. And, of course, that does mean that they cut out pretty much the entirety of the fourth book. Yeah, uh, including both characters that are in that book, Lisa Miller and Nice Chow's dad. They cut out most of the fifth book, uh, like only only the fights from those remain. Heavily whittled down uh, one of my favorite elements in the whole series in the third book. I mean, just whittled that to its core with the Envy Adams, which I would have liked to have seen much more of on screen. Especially because oh, the yeah. actress they cast was right for the part. Yeah, the the fourth and fifth books are they're in there as the fights. They, that's that's what survives of those. Yeah, even those are kind of transplanted. the The twins are in there. They don't speak, but man, do they play a mean electronic tune? As I said, it is the books on speed, and the movie moves so very fast. I mean. This is not a movie that you need to drink a lot of caffeine before because the movie does its job for, for you. I did read a thing, and I, I have a I have an article series on website of Doom that I write occasionally for. My very first article was on 3D. There, there was something I referenced that said that, man, I'm glad that Scott Pilgrim was not in 3D because it would break your eyes. I imagine that would be hard to post-convert to. Well, yeah, because there's so many elements in the film. Um, be sure to link to my review, because I did a review uh, for a bad movie. Oh, yeah. Game. But this, 
it, it is it is a hyper compressed adaptation, and yet you'll notice that neither one of us is complaining about it. No, what they did basically was they they compressed it down. The entire first book is in there verbatim, and elements of the second and third book are in there as part of the as part of the narrative. And the the overarching narrative is the Battle of the Bands. It focuses more on the band, so that gives it the thread. And of course, they they tie the relationship around that. They transplant all of the best parts from each of the book into different situations as it suits the movie. So a lot of it's in there. A lot of it's in there. It's just in a different place, a different time than it would be uh, in in the book. And the spirit of the book is absolutely nailed. I mean, it really doesn't feel as much like some of Wright's stuff. Uh, I feel like some of his own personal touches are a little bit more muted in favor of trying to go by the touches in the book. Well, I mean, it's very much an Edgar Wright film. There are the whip pans. It is. Rapid editing. Oh, yeah. And that's that's part of his signature. That's part of his signature where it's he gets things across very quickly just just by the rapid fire editing but i'm just saying that the general look of the film is a little less his and a little more bending to the source material that's true of course the book has very anime roots and uh or very manga-ish roots and uh, takes a lot from video games and boy did the movie play up the video game angle it uh, it it does not shy away from using the, that logic yeah which is good. I mean, it has that feel of extra lives. When you hit bad guys, they turn into coins. Sweet. Coins. Yeah. It's, it's a video game movie. I, I should know, this is another one where I read an earlier draft of the script. In this case, a draft that actually was used albeit rewritten an earlier draft that was actually kind of different made some major changes including a very different ending oh yeah that's right i think that that ending was shot too it was shot it wasn't ultimately used which i'm glad for i think that also goes for the fact that uh, Brian Lee O'Malley was still, like, the sixth book came out a couple months before the movie did. Oh, no, it wasn't months. It was weeks. That's true. I bought the book a week before I saw the movie. So, yeah, it was yeah. it was weeks. Yeah, and they, they had optioned the movie just after the third book came out. Yeah. And I think, and Edgar went off to make Hot Fuzz so that he could wait a little time for more books to come out before actually doing the movie, which is wise. And it should be noted, this is an adaptation that actually went both ways. Uh, O'Malley took some of the stuff from the script and got it into the books. Yeah, like, especially the, uh... You and her? It was just a phase. Just a phase? You had a sexy phase? Line. It's, it's an interesting example uh, of an adaptation that, you know, again, had that feeding off of it. But at the same time, it didn't feel like O'Malley was writing for the film, even though he kind of was, in a sense. They were they were kind of um, bouncing off each other, and I think they were working closely with each other uh, to do that. I mean, he, I don't think he has a writing credit on it, does he? No, he does not. He doesn't. The screenplay is uh, to Michael Bacall and uh, Edgar Wright. Yeah, which... Oh, God, there was a thing that I saw recently in a movie uh, with Michael Bacall. Uh, 21 Jump Street. 
What? Yeah, he did write that. That's one that I would love to get to at some point. Uh, that one also uh, has uh, Brie Larson played Indy Adams is in that one too, actually. Oh yeah. That's that's one that I would love to sit down and discuss. Not the place for it, but look, if you haven't seen it, go out and rent it immediately. You'll laugh your ass off. I only saw it because of your recommendation, but it's one I was not interested in seeing. But it was, it's a funny movie. It's funny because the trailers are great, but the trailers probably don't sell just how genius the movie is. I mean, it's a funny movie. And this was the movie that really made people go, okay, Channing Tatum doesn't suck. Rightly so, because he's great in it. But again, that's one for another day. I remember now. He was in Django Unchained. That's right, that's right. A Smitty Bacall. Wanted dead or alive. Smitty Backhole and the Smitty Backhole Game. That's right, that's right, he was, he was. Yeah, he does play in Glorious Bastards and Death Proof. He does a lot of side acting work as well. Yeah, but I just, yeah, Scott Pilgrim is a strange case because what I always tell people is, if you haven't read the books, read them first and then immediately watch the movie. Yeah. Because you'll enjoy both, equally. And I know I know a lot of people who are big fans of the movie that have never read the books. So. I ordered them to read it. Yeah. Exactly. I just got done telling a friend who I work with all about the books and uh, how how great they are. And he, he loves the movie. He has the soundtrack as car like permanently on loop. What I tell people is if you loved the movie, the book is a hyper-released, hyper-spread out. It's the same thing, but it's so much more fleshed out, and you'll love it. And a big part of the adaptation is the music. If the music mm-hmm. didn't work, then the movie wouldn't have worked. By Beck, no less. By Beck, yes. They had they had a different real artist, quote-unquote, play real bands. Each artist was a different band. Yeah. Yeah, Beck was Sex bob and he, he wrote all the music for that. And of course, the actors actually did play and sing the music. Uh, and I guess Michael Sarah had to actually dumb down his skills for the movie, because he does, he does play guitar. I wrote a song about you. You did? Yeah, it goes like this. to hear when it's finished finished i did not know that uh but that's that's awesome yeah i still think the movie version of sex bob is a lot better than the book version of sex bob in terms of quality they'd have to be they're they're playing music written by back i mean because i'm a big back fan so uh their direction to beck was uh, uh make it bad but awesome at the same time I think that seems so very appropriate for this material. I feel like we're probably coming at a moment where it'd be a good idea to jump to a film that I really wanted to discuss at length, and that is this year's winner for Best Director and my pick for the best film of last year, Life of Pi. got done reading it last night i wanted to read it for the cast so we could properly discuss because you know, i know you you read the book yeah i read it after watching the movie i did the same i saw it in theater in 3d 
find a way to see this film in 3D. Yeah, Blu-ray 3D if you have to. I think we've mentioned in our previous cast, but it does lose something goes to 2D. Which is delivered. It was planned as a 3D movie from the word go uh, when Ang Lee took over. Because several different people had worked on it. Uh, Lee was the one who finally got it made. And the book is also an extremely unfilmable book. And that's what makes it such an ideal topic to discuss today. It does follow a linear narrative as far as that goes. But there are some sequences, especially after uh, he goes blind, where you, you're not sure if what's happening is part of his delirium or if it's really happening. I think I told you, I think that's part of the point, but it's, it's, it's wow. <laughs> For this one, we're really going to have to talk around spoilers because this is one that is very fresh and people have not seen and a big goal here today is to get people to see this movie what i just said is more of a spoiler for the book and not the movie that does not happen in the movie but even so it's minor yeah no he does not go blind what's interesting to me is that as i said if you filmed the book literally you would get an r rating at the very best the movie's pg yeah there were kids at the showing i was at the movie is uh, a very surprising PG. I'm really kind of surprised it got a PG rating, but I think it's kind of an ideal of what a PG should be because it's a very man-against-nature film, and it's... It is a tough film. It is a tough film. Not as far as watching it. It's very, it's easy to watch, but just it deals with tough issues. It does. It's interesting to me because the book is so very different from the movie, and yet at the same time... The movie's a really great adaptation of the book. Yeah. And there are parts that are lifted verbatim. Oh, absolutely there are. And there are, also, there are also parts where I was reading the book and I had simultaneously the movie playing in my head and going, yeah, actually, that's this is what I got from what was on the screen. Like when there's a part, I won't ruin the majority of what this is about, but there's a part where the, the tiger, uh, whose name is Richard Parker, which I, I will never stop enjoying the fact that there's a tiger in this named Richard Parker. And that's all that he's ever called by. It's not Richard. It's always Richard Parker. Both names. Richard Parker. Richard Parker. Richard Parker. Richard Parker. Hey, Richard Parker! Richard Parker! Richard Parker! Richard Parker? A tiger? Richard Parker was a tiger? Yeah, he got his name through a clerical error. A hunter caught him drinking from a stream when he was a cub. And named him Thirsty. When Thirsty got too big, the hunter sold him to our zoo, but the names got switched on the paperwork. <laughs> the hunter was listed as Thirsty, and the tiger was called Richard Parker. We laughed about it, and the name stuck. Yes, and uh, when there's there's a bunch of meerkats, and yes. um, in the movie, his tiger is just going around picking up furry dogs. Of course, there's a lot of them when he's doing this you know they don't scatter they don't run away from them. they just go oh and of course the impression i got from that is well they this is a this is a place where there aren't a lot of predators so they're not used to predators so when he does that they're just kind of clueless and that's exactly what it describes in the book like wow they got that across really well because that's exactly the that was, that was exactly my thought process while watching it and that happened a couple times yeah, something was shown, but there wasn't exposition given because Ang Lee decided that he assumed that audiences were smart enough to pay attention while watching the movie. Right. 
which holy god that's that's a sign of a really good adaptation when they can when you can get that across with no words and there's a large chunk of the movie that is done without words it's definitely a movie of that nature there was a part in the theater in 3D where there's a, there's a part with flying fish my god this a 3D moment there are parts where i could swear and i thought it i thought it was just a trick of my mind if I could swear that the fish were actually flying beyond the edges of the frame. Oh, it was that way for my screening, too. Well, um, having gotten it on video and having been able to freeze frame, what they do is very subtle. The film is a 1.85, which is a standard widescreen. And just before that scene, it changes to a a 2.35, an ultra-wide. So there are black bars on top and bottom. That's brilliant. Yeah, and they, they deliberately have fish fly out of that bar so oh, that's genius i mean yeah. that's that's really i i didn't yeah. know that but that's a really great method of conveying that yeah yeah it's one of those things that if you don't have freeze frame you don't realize that's what's happening you think that well your your mind is tricking you oh my god i mean cinema is at its core an optical illusion so that's 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 genius uh, i'm glad you uh explained that cause that's i mean that's really thing i would never have caught yeah, but that's that's something that did stick with me after. I even I think there's a tweet out there which I say I swear to God a fish flew out of frame. I mean, because I I know when I saw it I had the same impression. So to know that that's how they did it and to know that it was that simple that's the thing. Yeah, but I mean, getting back to the film versus the book, I mean, I gotta ask what what struck you as like the biggest change. The biggest change is probably uh, both the book and the film both have the frame story where the author is visiting the person that this happened to, like so you can write it from first person. The love interest is a change. I don't think it's a big change. Um, the fact that the love interest is inserted into the movie, but it's not in the book, but I think it ties better to the ending. I think it does too. The biggest change is probably toward the end, like I said, when he goes blind and that whole that whole sequence happens. I won't say what it is, but it's just wildly different. And it's one of those things where you go, whoa, and I don't think it would have worked on screen. I don't think so. No, I think that's that's where the book is a little more effective than the movie in that, because when he gets to and yeah, we're trying to avoid spoilers, but. There is a point where something unbelievable does happen. Like you can you can kind of believe the fact that he's living on this boat with a Bengal tiger, you know, up to that point because it's very realistically handled both ways. You know, he's, he's a zoo tiger, he's a zookeeper. He does explain a lot more of zookeeping practices in the book, which I mm-hmm. thought was great. Oh, it's very fleshed out. Yeah. A lot of that is present in the movie. And it's yeah, it's believable up into a point where he gets to some place and it's the part with the prairie dogs mm-hmm. you know and the movie handles that well but in the book i think the thing that precedes that which is not in the movie i think more effectively gives the impression that what the hell is going on this is this is very unlikely and is this really a fictionalized account and that is after all at the core of the story um again we want to avoid spoilers but i mean i, I here's how i feel about the love interest I missed her in the book when I read it because I thought the character was a nice addition and helped humanize Pia a bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
And it gave him something to want. It gave him a reason to want to survive. Yeah, it it does. It really does. And, yeah, in the book it was uh, all the little things. I mean, he does explain the nature of hope and what goes through your mind when you're when you're starving out of your head and slowly dying. It's brutal stuff. It's 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 not an easy read. Yeah, and that's 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 actually that's the biggest change that struck me was that the book is a lot more brutal. There's stuff that happens in the movie that yes is brutal, but this is this goes into more detail. There's there's gore in the book. There's gore yeah, in the book. Yeah. There's a lot of gore in the book. Um I think that when's all said and done the question then has to be asked, which did you prefer? <laughs> that's an interesting question considering the content. Um that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I almost I almost want to say I prefer the movie. I don't almost. I definitely want to say I prefer the movie. Yeah. And I but I think that speaks to who I am as a person. I feel like Ang Lee read the book and came away from it with an idea for a transcendent movie. This is a movie about transcendentalism, big time. You come out of it feeling so alive and so happy and fulfilled and moved. In both cases, it definitely is a story that breaks you down and then builds you back up. I feel like Lee made a film that was more of an upbeat piece, and that goes more with my nature. If I were a darker person, I might prefer the book. I I still yeah. think the, the book is brilliant. I still think the book is really something to read. But I think that fundamental difference that Lee read the book and took something brighter away from it makes me prefer the movie. Yeah. I can agree with that. Yeah. That's probably also at the heart of uh, the art of adapting something. Bingo. If you can kind of interpret it in a way that's your own and yet at the same time is the essence of the thing being adapted. Oh yeah, because it's definitely, I think this is the only movie you could possibly make from the book. Well, not necessarily, but I think I think this is the only movie you can make from the book that would get released in theaters. Yeah, exactly. Really, the star of the film is the special effects. Uh, without them, it would the film would not have worked. I was very surprised when you told me afterward that there are only six shots of a real tiger in the film. Yeah, that's it. I was very surprised. Everything looks gorgeous. Everything looks real. And, uh, you know, that has to do with Rhythm and Hughes, which, unfortunately, this film, uh, due to the flawed model of uh, the way the visual effects industry works, they went bankrupt and never saw a penny from this film. And they and they won. They won an Oscar for it, for their efforts. But Oscars don't pay the bills. No, sadly. But it should be noted that the house is going to ultimately, I believe, survive uh, at least a little bit longer. Oh, really? Good. And hopefully this movie will get them work. Yeah, that's true. If I were making a big special effects film, these would probably be the first people I'd be looking to, because the work that they did on this movie was something to remember. So I'd like to see them survive a bit longer. I, I really hope they do. I think this is probably the most realistic, mostly CG film I have ever seen. You you watch it and you don't... CG does not enter your mind at all. No. Even when shots are obviously CG, they're not obviously CG in the sense of, well, that's fake looking. They're obviously CG in that they're impressionistic. Like a lot of the scenes on the water. But they're not supposed to look real. They're supposed to look impressionistic. And 
it's just it's it's a great film. It, it's it's a truly great film. I had to do this, but I feel like uh, we I shift gears to something that uh, I, I want to do, which is talk just real quickly about adaptations. Just kind of a quick zoom through least favorite and favorite adaptations. And I think it'd be fun to begin with favorites. So. Of the ones that we haven't listed, what would you say is something that got it right the most? Um, I would say uh, my personal favorite, just in its adaptation history, is probably Hitchhiker's Guide. Good choice. Come at us, fanboys. Yes. I became a fan of Douglas Adams, unfortunately, shortly after he died. And my introduction to uh, that material was a TV show, which is... Good, but admittedly not the best version of it. It started out as a radio show, and from there he he himself adapted it into a TV show, five books, and with each adaptation of it, uh, he deliberately made lots of changes so that A, it could be suited to its medium, and B, it would stand out from the other from all the other versions. He did write a draft of the script before he died. Um, he died four years before the movie was made. The guy that wrote Chicken Run. Uh, Terry Kirkpatrick. Yeah. Very talented writer. He did a rewrite, but he did keep most of what Douglas had in the script. It's, so it's basically Douglas's script that's that's on screen. Good. Yes. And um, it was a very good adaptation because there's a lot of things that happen haphazardly. In like it's a, it's a very episodic work, so it'd be you know the a film version would be very hard to do, but they they managed to do it. I'm very sorry that we're probably not going to see a restaurant at the end of the universe, you know, because they did they did put that in there. Let's go somewhere. Definitely. Where did you have in mind? I know there's a great restaurant at the end of the universe. People who want to see that, um, what I'd recommend they do is go pick up Martin Freeman's reading of that book which I've listened to, and which is a one-man show. Uh, Freeman uses a different voice for every single character, uh, including, of course, the one he played, Arthur Dent. He uses natural voice for that. It's great. I, I loved it. I really passionately recommend that one. That's, that's a good one. That's a good one. I also seek out the, uh, the second season of the radio show, which is basically that. Yeah. Basically the second book, and it's, you know, with a big major change. Uh, but yeah, seek out those two, and really just all of them. I would, I would go with a choice that's a little cliched, but it's one that I have to bring up, and that's To Kill a Mockingbird. Ooh, uh, yes. That's an, an interesting case, because that is a book that if they had waited to film it, I think it would have become unfilmable. Because the book would have been so set in people's minds, and I don't think he would have been able to move it. As it stands, it's not a movie that's ever going to be remade. Um, I cannot fathom how you would remake it. Uh, Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch is exactly how you picture him. The movie's an interesting case. It doesn't take a lot of liberties. It pretty much stays by the book. It pretty much follows it rather closely, which is funny because it's a fairly lengthy book. But the movie just condenses it so well. Uh, it's worth noting, I praised the earlier of Mice and Men, the 1992 one. That shares a screenwriter with this one, uh, Horton Foote, did the adaptation for this one, too. I think the guy just plain gets how to do adaptations, because it's great. And, of course, again, Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch is one of the most iconic performances in cinema history. Just such a force of good. Such a good man. He's 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 great in it. So, that th that gets my vote. Let's, let's discuss Least. Uh, what would you say is an adaptation that just, the one that made you the angriest? 
Uh, that's hard. <laughs> that's really hard because I don't like to focus on those uh, so much as the good ones. I do too, but there's one that stands out for me. Uh, I think... Um, I'll have to think about it. Why don't you go? For well, for me, I'm going to choose a book that I know isn't very good, but a movie that is bad for reasons that people often misunderstand why it's bad. And that's Left Behind. Look, oh, I know yeah. the I know the book isn't very good. I know that. But you know what? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it because of what it could have been, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It was an interesting idea. There are some things in it that are positively ridiculous, and they get worse as the series goes on to the point that I'm glad that... Well, I know they adapted two of the other books, but I didn't bother seeing them. It's, it's a problematic book. It's got some very, very offensive elements to it. But I look at it and I think to myself, man, what this could have been. It could have been an interesting idea for a movie. And there is one shot in the movie that is probably exactly how it should have been done where the main character is an air, airplane pilot who's walking through a post-rapture airport. And it's a very haunting shot. It's very well handled. And it gets the book right. But the rest of the movie is completely tone-deaf and makes a lot of changes for the sake of making changes. The reason that I think that the adaptation is often misinterpreted is because people look at it and they think, okay, well, it was because it had no budget. It, and that's true, it did not have much of a budget. But I don't think that's the problem with the movie. I think the problem with the movie is that, first of all, it makes major changes from the book for no particular reason. I mean, it moves stuff around for no real reason at all. But more to the point, nobody thought to bring ideas to it. Nobody thought to do something with it. And I feel like in the hands of filmmakers that wanted to approach this and bring an idea to it, Filmmakers with ideas, you might have gotten something. But of course, filmmakers with ideas weren't going to touch this material. But I can't help but feel like this was a missed opportunity. Like, someone with some real cleverness could have come in and made a really interesting book about what do you do when you've realized that, oops, uh, we, we should have been paying more attention in, uh, in church. What do you do about that? There was some interesting morality that could have been played with. And I, I guess this is my bias coming in because that's what I would have wanted to see. But I felt like when I read the book, that was the movie that I was that was playing out in my head was even more interesting than the book. So no, I'll grant you, you probably could never, following that book, make a particularly accurate movie. But you could have tried a little a little bit harder than this because they they really don't. Even some of the really interesting conversations, some of the interesting material in the book is cut. Some of the really interesting characters are cut. I mean, I say it's a bad book. The truth is, I read the series to the end. Okay, I probably shouldn't be admitting that, but I did. But you know what? It did. It was effective for me, and so the movie, the movie is a miss for me in that regard. But uh, that that that's one. It's getting ready to be readapted. Um, but I don't have any particular hope for that. Although I should note that I I am intrigued by the director, uh, Vic Armstrong, who was the second unit director on a lot of films, uh, and is most notably the stuntman for Harrison Ford in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. A, a legend, a genuine legend. And an interesting guy, I, he hasn't directed much, um, I'm at least intrigued by his presence behind the scenes, but I'm really not expecting the new version to be very good, although it does share one element with the, an earlier movie we discussed, Nicolas Cage is going to be in it, because he needs money, he needs money badly. I don't know, I mean, that's, that's my take on, on my worst.
I guess it's fitting that's something that's not very good. Um, I should also note, I've never seen Simon Birch, which is very, very, very loosely based on one of my all-time favorite books, A Prayer for Owen Me, but I won't watch it for that reason, because I know it's so utterly untrue to the book. So, there's that. One of the many adaptations that pisses me off is whenever someone tries to adapt a Dr. Seuss book. Thank you. Thank you. I think... God. I think. Damn it. <laughs> There's been one good one. The Grinch was awful. The Grinch was embarrassing. <sighs> I mean, I hear I hear Cat in the Hat's worse, um, but I have not seen Cat in the Hat. I think you said that Horton Hears a Who was actually pretty close to being That's good. the good one. That's the good yeah. one. That's a genuinely good movie. That's a funny, fun, clever movie. And it has Dr. Seuss's spirit. It's a very strange, out-there, offbeat movie. The, the Lorax was also... I had mixed feelings on the Lorax. I've heard it was unbelievably preachy. It is unbelievably preachy. And ironically so, because they did deals with car companies for it. <laughs> Who delivers outstanding fuel efficiency without compromising the joy of driving? <laughs> Mazda with Skyactiv technology. And who received the only Truffula Tree Seal of Approval? <laughs> Mazda with Skyactiv technology. And who I don't know. You've only said it like a billion times. Only Mazda could reimagine driving with Skyactiv technology. We build Mazdas. What do you drive? See Dr. Seuss's The Lorax in theaters, rated PG. Yeah, that's that's an SUV, no less. Yeah. <sighs> what? That doesn't. No. I mean, I was shocked watching the movie. I saw the movie in the theater. Uh, I was I was shocked by some of the things that they were saying because, you know, I knew they had so many sponsors that spoke the opposite of this. Like, wow, okay. I, you know, I haven't seen it. I have seen The Grinch, and The Grinch is one of those movies. I just sit there wondering, how did this movie get made? The The set design was hideous. The makeup design was hideous. The color schemes were hideous. A Dr. Seuss movie should not feel evil. No. That's the other thing. The Who's... I, re I recommend everybody go watch the uh, the Nostalgia Critic review for this. He says more than we ever could. He brought up the fact that the, the Who's were just uh, terrible people, which contradicts the whole spirit of the book. Well, the whole point of the story is that the Who's are better people. They are, they're kind and they're loving, and it's their basic essential nature that makes them strong people. It, it's silly for them to have done that route, and it, yeah. it's, a, it's a stupid adaptation. It's a vulgar movie, too. It's... Ugh, God, yeah. It's a gross, grotesque film. I didn't enjoy it, and I've got no love for it. No. Especially when there's a bear version out there. There's the Chuck Jones version. Yeah, the Chuck Jones version is perfect. And as Boris Karloff reading, doing the narration, how much better does it get? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it, I think he really hit the nail on the head. For I, for one, will probably never see Cat in the Hat. Just, there's no reason to sit through it. No, we won't even rip it, people. No, God, no, no. So don't request it. It will, it will never be done. No, watch the Nostalgia Critic review. Yeah, but if you're going to see anything of it. But I think, I think this would be a good point for us to start looking at closing it up. So I think yeah. the last question I would ask you is, what do you think makes for a good adaptation? What do you think is the most necessary quality? For adapting a book to film. Hmm. Well, we have touched on all ranges of how you can adapt something, whether uh, being really close because it's 
because there's really no need to change anything or changing kind of changing uh, a lot of it but keeping the spirit i think i think that's probably it just keeping the spirit if it's necessary to change things then yeah go ahead change it if it's not really necessary then don't i think the essence is making the perfect version that works on film i think that's probably the core of it i think you're right i think for me if i was to say anything it would be having a strong interpretation having a strong perspective that you need to see expressed. And I think that that's what the best adaptations do. The best adaptations give you a reason that this material was brought to the film. That's, I think, what you need to do. Is you need to say, well, this is what I took away from this book, and this is what came into my head while I was experiencing it. And I think that's what makes for the best adaptation. is not trying to be as literal to the book, but trying to... Bring it to the screen as you saw it fit. And so, yeah, that's what I would take away from. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Hold on, there's doggy barking. That's okay, I've got a cat at my side. Um, <laughs> and speaking of cats, this would be a good time for us to talk about what we're doing next. Next, we're delving into the Lost Tapes. We're, we're going to do another Lost Tapes episode. This is going to be a bad one. This is going to be a very bad one. <laughs> oh, Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to see what happens when you stumble upon a talking cat? A talking cat? I don't even think the movie itself is going to be that silly. I think that's more than we can hope for. No, it's it's the it's the punctuation that's silly. No, we're looking at uh, part-time porn director David Dakota's family film, A Talking Cat. And I am not making that part up. Nope, it was even shot on the set of a gay porn. Yeah, this is a family film, people quote-unquote family, quote-unquote film. Yeah, we we can't resist a challenge, so that's going to be our next episode. You can find our blog at thefilmroom.podbean.com. You can email us at filmroompodcast at gmail.com. And find us on Twitter at at filmroomcast. Yes, 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 yes. Gotta, gotta get that in there. Uh, until then, I'm Austin Chin. I'm Alan Rosebaugh. Have a nice day.
feel infinite.